Welcome to the 343rd episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a really large show for you today. We're going to be talking a lot about chips. So we've got news from ARM. We've got news from, well, about Arduino. We've also got security chip news, or rather, news about unique device IDs and how chip companies are helping make devices more secure which is complicated. And then we step out of the whole chip realm and into more smart home stuff. So we'll be talking about a new, oh, actually, this is a new SDK from Amazon. And Apple, their home pods, there was a little, little, little smidge of news. But we're also, gonna, <laughs> we're also going to be talking about them bringing on someone new and what that might mean. In our smaller news bits, we're going to be talking about Wise, Google, a blast from the past on Connected products and connected bunnies, connected bunnies, y'all. So, and so much more. We're also going to hear from our guest, who is John Cowan, the founder and or co-founder and CEO of EdgeX. And this is going to be super nerdy. We're going to be talking about actually military adoption of distributed IoT computing, right? Whoa. And we're going to be talking about architectures all the way down to like databases. So get your nerd hats on because this show is kind of deeply nerdy, but we're still going to have a lot of fun. Plus, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Very. So let's get to it. Ba-da-ba! This week's show is brought to you by Very. Very is a fully distributed IoT engineering firm that partners with its clients to build systems for smart manufacturing, smart energy and utilities, consumer electronics, and connected wellness. You should try to discover what Very's multidisciplinary teams can do for you at verypossible.com slash services. I have to say, Kevin, we love the Very folks. They're here I feel like every month, somewhere on the show, there is they a They are very reliable as a sponsor. Very. <laughs> All right. That's because they like y'all. They think y'all are worthwhile. Yay, audience. Okay. Just This is going to be a quick reminder. Google's Smart Home Summit event is happening Thursday, which is the day this podcast goes live. So if you're listening to this after, like, I think it's 10 o'clock PT on Thursday, you're going to be like, why didn't they talk about the Google Smart Home Summit event? And we're going to be like, because we record this on Wednesday, y'all. So just know we're coming to that next week. You'll have to wait for the goodness and there'll be something in the newsletter. Okay, moving right along to big news from this week. On Monday, Arm announced three things that it's trying to do to help speed up development time for IoT devices and make it less complicated to try to develop for embedded devices because we talk about this all the time. Embedded devices, they run real-time operating systems. There's so many of them. There's like FreeRTOS. There's Microsoft has one that I can't think of what it's called right now. They've got Cephr. We've got Contiki. There's just a lot. And it can be a pain. The other issue, the speed to market issue is, you know, companies like ARM, they license their IP to chip companies that then build chips around them and then sell them to companies that put those chips in the end products. So when ARM says something cool like, hey, we've announced this crazy new feature you can take advantage of, you're actually not going to see it in end products for three to five years, which is yeah. like an eternity in software time. So here's what's happening. They're calling all of this total solutions for IoT because naming is hard. Yeah. So all the, Well, all the good names have been taken in fairness. They really have. So they're doing what's called ARM Corestone. This is a standardized set of capabilities and features that are going to be on microcontrollers and the a couple of the NPUs, the neural processing units, the ethos neural processing units. And this is things like, hey, this is the CPU. This is where the neural processing unit is going to be and its capabilities. Here's how we're going to handle. Here's software frameworks for handling over-the-air updates. Here's the security area. All of that is going to be standardized and just available to the chip companies. Now, this is not for the architectural designs. Like, you know how Apple is using an ARM base to design all their latest chips. Google's doing the same thing. This is not for that. This is for just straight off the shelf, very solid, not complicated 
ARM. No customizations. No customizations. So that's going to be available. And then they're also going to do something they call it ARM's virtual hardware target. But basically, they're putting this in the cloud. And that means developers can actually develop in this virtualized ARM chip. And so once ARM releases IP, it's going to be available for developers to start working on right away in the cloud, which is pretty awesome. That is huge. And I say that from experience not building IoT devices, but in one of my classes on computer architecture, we used software to virtualize an 8-bit microcontroller and learn how to code in machine language, basically, which was awful, awful, awful. But it's good to know. You have to understand that kind of stuff if you're in computer science. We couldn't do that if, let's say, let's say ARM comes out with a new chip, for example, just to apply it to this. They come out with the design for the chip, but now the chip has to be built by companies A, B, and C. And if you're a developer, you have to wait in today's world. But if you can virtualize the chip and basically use software to simulate it, you can then start work on your software. And that cuts out a huge amount of time. Yeah, it's like 18 months to a year, sometimes Mm -hmm. even longer, depending on how complex things are. So that's that. And then the third thing they announced is something called Project Centauri. And this is basically common software for running on MCUs. So this is really necessary. ARM actually, when they went into the server business, they had to build this. They called it uh, Project Cassini. And this for the server business was basically because most servers were, you know, Linux or Windows based, right? They had to, they were all on a common x86 chip. So basically everything was developed for that one thing. And there was lots of ability to reuse your code, all of this, because it was all pretty standardized. Project Cassini tried to take the ARM architecture and standardize all the things you'd need for, you know, basic enterprise and server-based computing on that. And they did a good job with it. So what's happening with Project Centauri is they're doing the same thing for IoT. So this will sit on top of like the random RTOSs. You know, this will be a way that you can just kind of as a developer, if you need to, you can just cut and paste code, right? And this is a big deal. So all of this is really great news for anyone building on ARM. And there are a lot of y'all because it is probably one of the most popular chips for the IoT, the ARM M-Class. So this is for M-Class, the microcontroller class devices, by the way. I think I said that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, not the A performance chips and so on, yeah. which you wouldn't need in That's in where IoT. the Cassini stuff comes in. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Y- there's no virtualization there. Okay, so that is that news, and it's a big deal. So we're excited about that. Everybody who builds IoT products is going to be excited about it. And moving on from there. It gets more exciting. It gets even more exciting. So one of the companies, Foundries.io, or just Foundries, this was co-founded by Ian Drew, who was a former, I think, CMO at ARM. He founded this company a while back. I've written about it. It, it provides a platform actually, for Linux. It's secure Linux, and it it makes it easy for companies to abstract a lot of the stuff that Arm just talked about abstracting, right? And run it. So yay, that's what they do. What they announce, though, they basically announce support for Arm system ready. And that's an underlying way to standardize off-the-shelf Linux OS type things. So build stuff on top of Linux for Arm. But in their press release, which is all about running on ARM and Linux, they have a quote. And this quote is from Adriano Cinello, who is the business unit leader at Arduino Pro. And that quote says, our new Linux-based solutions combined with Foundry's factory and Pendum system-ready IR certification will reduce our customers' software development efforts and provide a powerful DevOps platform for secure IoT fleet deployment, management, and maintenance. Did you catch the keywords there, Kevin? Well, you had me at Arduino. Right. And their new Linux-based solutions? Yes, because today, if you're using Arduino, you're not running Linux on it. Um, I forget what Arduino actually has on its software stack. But, I mean, I've written C++ on mine or uh, some other, use some other software, but it's not, it hasn't been Linux, like traditional Linux, I should say. Right. 
And the Arduino Pro is, we've talked about this hardware before. It is designed for cars, industrial automation. It's called Portenta, right? Yes, the Portenta H7 is their current module. And this has a Cortex M7 running at 480 megahertz and also a Cortex M4 running at 240 megahertz. So you've got some high performance, well, I wouldn't call it high performance, for an M class, I would say, and then more something more efficient. These are not inexpensive Arduinos like we've seen in the past. This is like a 90 euro Arduino board. So this is higher end, higher performance, more connectivity. It's got Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in. So there's a lot more you can do with this. Yes. And apparently now you can run Linux on it and manage it using foundries if you want. So I thought that was actually pretty neat because Arduino is moving up in the world basically is, is what this says to me. All right. Final chip story for you, but this is a big one too. Um, I love how the semiconductor firms are like, you know what? IoT is too hard and insecure and we have problems. We're going to make it easier. So in this case, Infineon is the company making it easier. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Silicon Labs doing something called custom manufacturing service. And this was a way to let device makers put unique device IDs and certificates on an individual device at scale during manufacturing, which is a big deal. So Infineon is now doing this in partnership with Serent, which is a company it ended up getting when it bought Cypress. And Serent was this awesome Wi-Fi, like cloud-based Wi-Fi company. I love those guys. So what they have done is they have eliminated all the spreadsheets associated with unique device IDs and getting security data around the manufacturing process. So if I'm like... Did you say spreadsheets... I did say spreadsheets, like Excel. So what would happen, <laughs> I know, what would happen is like literally when you're, you, you have your chips, there's a spreadsheet for everything coming off, you know, the manufacturing line and it has all their unique IDs and all that stuff. You can get this, you don't have to get this, but then you have to transfer that along the manufacturing and packaging process before it gets in your device. And that's how it happens. So Infineon is like, yeah, that's so old school. And I've actually had problems with devices that have had like a spreadsheet got lost in production and my device would not link up online easily. I had to like enter in a Mac address. It was crazy. Nobody wants that. So nobody wants spreadsheets either. <laughs> nobody wants spreadsheets, but that's what they have. So this is called cloud ID. And like if you're Nest or a company building a connected device, you're going to set up a Serent account you're going to configure the cloud-to-cloud connection for your device data and everything. And then when your products are manufactured, when your chips are manufactured, they're stuck on a reel. And this is like an old school, well, it's not really an old school film reel, but it, it's a reel of chips <laughs> and they get cut off during uh, manufacturing and placed on boards. That's how this happens. So when they're packaged in a reel, you can scan a QR code on that reel and basically all the information that would have been in a database gets transferred along with it via the cloud. So that whole reel, all the unique device IDs are now promulgated into a spreadsheet in the cloud, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it should be a database, but that's okay. But that's, that's fine. Okay. It's a, And then you can provision certificates to everything on that reel. Everything happens basically much more easily, just cloud to cloud connections. And then when you're like the company that's manufacturing this, you can log into that cloud. You can see what's provisioned on each individual device. You can see each individual device ID. You can track registration. All of that good stuff happens. So basically, it's taking what had been emailed documents or, God forbid, printed documents and just making them into the cloud, which, yeah. And then you also, the way that you can access these is through a QR code that's attached in the database to all that device data. So you yes. have the individual device data. This is really smart. This is not the first time I've seen this, but it's still smart. If you buy a lithium ion battery, like say you have a solar home and you want to add batteries, small ones, large ones, whatever, the battery pa packs, the individual cells all have QR codes. And scanning that QR code, you can see all of the attributes of that particular Battery pack, such as, you know, when was it tested? Was it tested within the proper millivolt parameters? So you know all the attributes of it 
as an end user, but I could see from a production standpoint and a device maker, it's another way to get at this data in a much easier way. Exactly. So very excited about this. And I will also say it should tie into things like, you know how there's these uh, blockchain ledger for matter for security Mm -hmm. and device. It should be able to tie into things like this. So what's happening is we're seeing a push towards greater security and we're seeing everybody rise to meet those demands, which is exactly what we hoped would happen, right? Yay. Okay. Now let's move on to well, this is, we're moving to less and less hardware here in, in, in our progression with the show. Amazon has announced new Madam A Connect kits. So that's ACK, the ACK. The, <laughs> the ACK SDK. They've announced the ACK SDK. So Alexa Connect Kit actually was a hardware module they announced a couple years back at one of their in-person developer days. And I was super excited because basically it was everything you needed to build an Madam A compatible device on a board. And you would just stick that board in your product and you didn't have to know anything. I mean, you had to know something, but not much. You didn't have to know anything about hardware. So that was so popular. They're now actually allowing people to pick their own modules and hardware. So now you just have the SDK. You can say, hey, put this SDK on your own hardware and you can enable anything to be Madam A enabled. Yeah, it looks like they've got a couple of hardware vendors lined up that'll support this. Leaderson Tonley? Never heard of Tonley. Inatech, LinkPlay, um, and they're doing that on Espressive hardware. And mm-hmm. everybody loves their Espressive hardware. And yeah, Jasco is building stuff using this. This is going to be cheaper. I mean, basically, you can you can pick the lowest bill of materials, the lowest bomb you ha- can, right, and just pop Alexa on it. So, or or you want to prioritize power efficiency, and one chip is more power efficient versus another, and you don't need all that power. Yes. Mm. So. It is, yeah, this is good news for yes. developers. All right. Now, maybe you've been sitting here and you're like, Stacy, I don't build products. I just live in a smart home. This is the part of the show that you're going to like. So, Apple. Apple had an event this week. <laughs> Apple. Well, I mean, you know, it ties in with the ARM processors because they have new ARM processors for their new machines. Yeah. Was Those are for MacBook much, Pros. Yeah. There was no HomeKit news or anything. And no, no, no. There was no HomeKit news, but there was HomePod Mini news. Well, if you call that news, it's the same price, $99, and now it's available in several new colors. Actually, just three. I call I call that a few new colors. Okay. But, uh, I was giving them the benefit of the doubt by saying several. You are correct. It's yellow, orange, and blue. Or, well, they have fancy names for it. Um, yes, but, but, but it's yellow, yellow orange, and blue. blue. And you know what? I would have bought the orange if that was available to me, but it's not. Well, you use Android anyway. I know. And I've, I'm stuck with Google's Coral, which I don't love, but that's okay. That's okay. We're going to be okay with this. The point is there wasn't much news on the HomePod front or the HomeKit front at this. We didn't really expect it. So it's, I mean, yeah. But there was news earlier on, I think it was last week or maybe, I don't know when this happened, but it was prior to the last show. So Apple has brought on Afru's family who had worked there before. Um, He left Apple in 2016 to go found an audio startup called Sing. And they built a high-priced, fancy digital speaker. And now Apple has hired him back and he is going to be working on the HomePod. Now, what do we think of this? We don't know. <laughs> well, he he has a history of building high-priced smart speakers, so he fits in very well with Apple. Um, what do we think about this? Well, clearly the the original HomePod, you know, that Apple has pulled the plug on that. We all know that, right? So they're not making that anymore. So they really only have one smart speaker. They need to expand that line. They need to, I think, make some larger speakers. I assume he's coming in to do just that. Yeah, he's an audio engineer. So I don't expect like HomeKit innovations, but I am curious to see like Apple in voice and Apple in digital assistance. Like it's a really weird thing happening there. Like, so they actually announced a service plan that's like $4.99 a month and you can get access to Apple Music, but only using Siri, which Kevin's response was like, they're going to make you pay for Siri? What? Well, yeah, because, you know, you can get Apple Music for $9.99 a month, have the app, and it already has Siri support in it. I, th- I think this is just a way for them to bring on people, iPhone users in particular, because it's only for iPhones, to have them use Siri more. 
Well, you could use it on a HomePod. Yeah. So Yeah, but um, you always had the app to fall back on if you wanted. So I suspect it's, they're trying to build up the user base for Siri, as well as add a new subscription revenue model for people who are like, eh, I'm not using Apple Music because it's 10 bucks and I can pay the same and get Spotify, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now it's five bucks. I thought maybe, and this is crazy, if I bought that orange HomePod for $99 and I paid $5 a month, I could actually have music throughout my house or in my on my HomePod without actually having Apple devices. Well, you have an Apple device because it's the home. Right, but w- without actually having to convert to the iPhone universe, which is actually kind of interesting. You could, provided you have an iPhone there. Don't, I would think you'd need an iPhone to set up the HomePod. Oh, yeah, you do. Or an which, iPad. Which you do, because yeah, somebody else I do in your have house an iPad. uses. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay, never yeah. mind. That's not no, as this exciting. Is, this, is, this is almost of a lock-in kind of approach, which is interesting because Apple Music, which was originally the, the Beats music that was on Android and then came to iOS, they bought Beats, got Beats music, changed it to Apple Music, and still kept it open for Android users. But now this particular plan is iOS. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the Apple news. If you, they also announced some wicked awesome chips, but we're not talking about chips anymore. Okay, and three, let's, three colors, and the three colors on the HomePod. Yes. Okay, Tesla. Let's talk about it, Kevin. Yeah, this is interesting. It's only in Texas for now. It's starting in Texas. Tesla has launched an insurance, car insurance plan for Tesla owners using real time driving behavior. So, in a sense, this is like the ODBC modules that you plug into any car today and give the data to your insurance company and they might lower your rate if you are a safer driver than average, et cetera. They might raise it if you, you know, do donuts all the time as well. Tesla doesn't need the ODBC port to read all that because it's all built into their car. They're just reading the car data. And if I were still in Texas, I would totally apply for a quote, but unfortunately I'm not. And that's fine. And some people have, uh, based on the story on Electric, and you know, were quoted their different rates. You can save money if your driving behavior score is higher than ninety. Everybody starts with a ninety, and then it adjusts the score just based on your driving. I'm disappointed. I thought this would be more of a pay for what you drive kind of thing, which would make it much cheaper. And that would make it much more appealing. But no, it's no different than the current insurance plans that are built off existing car data today. So I'm a little disappointed, but I don't live in Texas, so I guess I don't care. That's not true, because it does say in the fine print, they will not use age or gender to calculate your insurance premium, which is done everywhere else and could save. Like, I am about to have a 16-year-old, and my car insurance rates are going to be insane. Yeah, that's true. And I think she'll be a good driver. I mean, she will be an experience. So actuarially, she might be a problem. It'll be really interesting to see how this, like how much real-time driving behavior can change. Like, will Tesla be able to see, for example, my daughter's inexperience behind the wheel? You know, I, I don't know. Right, right. So. This, and, and that does lead to an interesting question. They're really basing this on the, less on the, I don't want to say less on the driver, but more on the car itself. It doesn't matter who drives the car if you're all driving roughly the same, as opposed to, say, your daughter. (laughs) It's me. I'm the person who would raise our insurance (laughs) rates. (laughs) Yeah. So, but yeah, no, that's, that's true. So, okay, let's move on. We'll see if this comes anywhere else and we'll learn more about it. Okay, Wise. Oh my gosh. Yes, it's another new product. Yeah, they've got a video doorbell pro. It's going to cost $65. It's going to give you six months of battery life. This can be wired or battery powered. You can pre-order it now. Um, you know, <laughs> it's wise. Stacy's like, yeah, whatever. Um, it's going to, res- it's going to do, um, one to one aspect ratio, which is a little different. So they say it'll get you your whole porch. Um, it's going to stream video in 1440 by 1440 HD, 12 second clip playback. Um, that is going to be free. The, there is no local storage option for the people who are going to no, ask. No, that kind of surprises me because I would think that your doorbell camera would see less, it would capture less footage than a camera 
which is always on and people walking by depending where you place it. So that surprises me. And that's one of the reasons people gravitate to Wise is, hey, I, I, I have, I've got my video on the device. It's on an SD card. It's not in the cloud. So that's a little surprising, but I will say good to see both 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. Yes. You are going to have to take it off your wall to charge it, just so you know. And even if you wire it, it's not going to ring your doorbell, which is kind of a weird thing, I think. So if you have an existing doorbell in your house, this isn't going to work on it. You're still going to need the little wireless chime doohickey. Yes. So, all right. Enough about that. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I care, but, you know. It's, I know. I there's, know. Just, there's so many wise products. You know what I care about? Tell me what you care about. I care about the new Tensor SoC inside the Pixel 6 and 6 Pro. And I care about knowing if you decided to buy one. <gasps> I did. So I am on my, my, I feel like my phone is on my last legs or its last legs. And I bought it two years ago. So that seems crazy, but it's true. And it was a Pixel 3a. And I love that phone. It's a good phone. I mm -hmm. had replaced a Pixel 2, I think. I can't remember. Yeah, it was a Pixel 2. And so I bought the 6, like the smaller phone, because they're both freaking huge. It's ginormous. It's 6.4 inches. Yeah. That's the small one. Yeah, so I had to go small because, I mean, size is my ultimate determinator in a phone. I'm sorry. I know all of y'all are like, what, Stacy? I'm like, if it can't fit in a pocket, it's not even useful to me. But I'm really kicking myself now because... <sighs> yeah, because you got the 599 Pixel 6, which is very aggressive pricing, although we don't know how well the chip will work yet. But you did not get the 899 larger than ginormous one. And that's a bummer because that's the only one that has UWB inside. Yeah. And for those of y'all who may not be aware of why we care about having ultra wideband inside, it's because I wanted to have fine grain location tracking for my tiles or whatever else when I lose things, because I lose a lot of things, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to rely on Bluetooth for that. Boo! Yeah. Yes. Your thing is in the house. Good yeah. luck. Thanks. Thanks, Google. Yeah. I, I got to say, not that I lose things a lot, and not that I go out of the house that much to lose things, but the AirTags with the UWB, they use Apple's Find My Network, and when I get them in 15 feet of them, I get a nice little arrow pointing to the left or right. I walk, I get distance like down to, you know, point two feet or whatever it is, up and down. It's really, really nice. Kevin, do not. I know. You're not going to convince me to go up to a giant slab of glass. It's bad enough. When we are not on the show and we're talking, I constantly tell Stacey she should get an iPhone for HomeKit and for the all all the UWB stuff. They but. did make a smaller one, actually. That was that was. Yes, I looked there at them is a and thirteen simply, mini. Simply for the thirteen mini, I was like, oh, that's the size a phone should be. Mm -hmm. <sighs> then you can get your orange HomePod tangerine. No, you're our HomePod person. I'll send okay. you a tangerine. Tangerine. Okay. Before we devolve into singing, let's talk about an ancient device that is getting resurrected just in time for Halloween. And Stacy is so happy about this. I am happy. Okay. So back in like the mid-aughts, there was a class of cute devices like the Berg little printer, the goodnight lamp, the Nabats tag, which was a little bunny that was powered by Wi-Fi. The, the chumby. Yes, all of these devices were like, hey, we have access to, you know, cheapish computing. I can't remember if Pies were out yet. I don't think they were. And basically, they were like, we can connect something to the cloud and do fun things with it. And they were all so cute. And none of them work anymore. Very few of them work anymore, I should no. say. So what we have here, though, is the founder of Nabats Tag, which was a Wi-Fi bunny that it was just cute. It just had a like literal, a literal rabbit. Yeah, it's a little tiny bunny, a plastic bunny that has little LEDs inside that glow and you could press it, it'll tell you the weather. The bunnies will talk to each other. They're just adorable. So they stopped working because their cloud connection died because, you know, having a cloud connected device, they were launched in 2005. So having a cloud connected device, that's older than my daughter. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's like hard to imagine. But they're bringing it back, and they're if you have an existing Nabats tag, and I know that some of y'all do, you can actually get on this. It's not a Kickstarter; it's a crowdfunded 
platform. Um, and buy a kit that uses a Raspberry Pi to resurrect your Nebastag locally. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes. And yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, so you can bring your bunny back to life with new internals. And if you have one, I totally understand doing this. Yeah, and it's kind of like... I mean, it's it's not quite it's not like Alexa or Google Home, but it is kind of like it. Like, yeah, it's going to be fun. So, okay, we're going to move on to the voicemail. So, the IoT Podcast voicemail is sponsored this week by a new sponsor. It's Blues Wireless and their Note Card. Blues Wireless provides the Note Card. This is a cellular and GPS-enabled device to cloud data system on a module. Each note card is going to come with 500 megabytes of data that's going to be usable over the next 10 years. It costs $69 or less. So that is reliable connectivity for 10 years for $69 or less. And the connectivity is globally available in more than 136 countries. You can learn more about Blues at blues.io. Okay, so if you have questions for us on the IoT Podcast hotline, you can call us at 512-623-7424. And for October, your prize is going to be a package of 250 RGB Twinkly's lights. Yes, get you ready for the holidays. Okay, so call us. And last week, we actually asked y'all for help because we had someone call us and ask about... IoT devices for woodworking workshops. And neither of us really has much. We don't have woodworking <laughs> workshops. <laughs> it's like, we don't have experience no. with this, but y'all do. And y'all came up with some really great ideas. So instead of taking a listener question, we're actually going to take listener answers. Yay. And let's take it. So we got, everyone basically was like, you guys forgot about air quality monitoring sensors. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So, you know, this could be an aware, this could be someone uses an old FooBot. And the goal here is when the air gets bad down there, you open a window. Yay. You could use a bunny. A bunny? Then the bass tag. But the bass tag doesn't have an air quality sensor. <laughs> oh, shame on you, bunnies. All right. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm going to get you a bunny. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> you're mocking it and you're going to love it. Okay. I'll put it in my wood workshop. There it oh. Poof. Okay. Another good suggestion was a Z-Wave smoke alarm that turns off a Z-Wave smart plug between the uninterruptible power supply and, okay, this person's doing 3D printing um, if smoke is detected, but he said this could apply to soldering irons and wood-burning tools, anything that might cause a fire if left on by accident. And I thought that was actually pretty good. Very smart. Kevin, you want to you wanna do anything? One was something we actually did come up with was tying in a, a smart doorbell for notification. So having a smart speaker, a smart display, because most people's workshops are not going to be by their front door. Totally get that. A smart plug on the shop computer, which is configured to boot up when the power comes on. This person says it lets me voice command my computer to turn it on from the living area. And it's done booting by the time I get to my shop, which, yes, why waste time? You know, if you're going to do work, and you just say, Madame A or Hey G, boot up the workshop computer. By the time you get there, it could be there. So that's good. Lights on smart switches, definitely something I think we... We talked about those. We did talk about that, yes, um, which I think is very wise. I will say, if your workshop isn't just a wood workshop, so this is a good one for anybody who does like 3D printing or CNC cutting. This person says, hey, when I run long jobs, so multi-day jobs or many hour long jobs. He has an uninterruptible battery supply, a UPS, an uninterruptible power supply on those devices. So if the, like he gets a minor power outage, so like a tiny power flash, I get those. Um, it doesn't screw up like a long project, which is really smart. Yeah. And, and something I had said, I had said, maybe you want to put smart outlets in so that way your power tools you could just use a voice command or a button to turn them off when you're leaving even if it's just temporary that way nobody can wander around and cut, cut an arm off or anything i had said you know i don't know if they're rated high enough for the wattage but um we got somebody on twitter who said it's actually an amp issue you need to check the amps of your plug 
versus the amps the tool requires and try to be 20% less than the rating. And that's spot on. I did mix up my, my volts, watts, and amps in that one. So I always have to look that up. It's so hard. Yeah, I know. All three of them are tied together, and I always goof them up. Yep. And somebody also mentioned adding a flare smart air vent or, you know, there's, there's others, Alua, um, there's, there's tons of air vents. So he doesn't waste heating or cooling on the shop when it's not in use because sometimes he doesn't get down there for weeks. So yeah, you, you could have like a motion detector in there to open your air vents, your HVAC. So that way your system is heating or cooling when you're in there, just like it would be in the house yeah. and turned off when you're not there. So you guys Awesome. Good ideas. Excellent ideas. So hopefully that helps. And if you're setting up your workshop or maybe you already have one and you're like, oh, I need a, I need an air quality monitoring sensor. Now you, you have ideas. All right. So remember, we'll come back to taking your questions next week. So if you give us a call at 512-623-7424, you will be entered to win the Twinkly's Smart Lights and you might hear your question on the show. That concludes the news segment of the podcast, but please stay tuned for our guest. This week's guest is John Cowan, the CEO of EdgeX. We're going to be talking about distributed architectures and building the military of things. And now a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Very. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Very, a leading IoT engineering firm. And fans of this podcast might be interested to know that Very has launched a podcast of its own about the IoT space called the Over the Air podcast. And I have Ryan Prosser, the CEO of Very. Ryan, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the podcast with our listeners today. Thanks, Stacey. Yeah, sure thing. The podcast is called Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices in the Journey. And so far, we've had a lot of big guests on, including the former CEO of Boeing, who's gone on to raise a bunch of money for IoT initiatives in space. I also recently interviewed the CEO of Monarch Motors, who've developed essentially Tesla for tractors. All right. So tell us, why did you start this podcast? Rather than outcomes, we really wanted to dive into the journey and share those experiences with the audience, aka what went right, what went wrong, and how our listeners can bake those lessons into their own IoT initiatives. You're going to hear business leaders sharing, you know, kind of warts and all lessons they've learned. And that hopefully gets them thinking, oh my God, I would have made that mistake. I love it. I love that kind of show. So what can you tell us about the types of things you'll be focused on? One thing that I personally am really passionate about is unpacking and exploring the missteps and some of the scar tissue related to those lessons learned, especially mistakes that didn't appear to be mistakes at the outset. Why was that not the correct path? What would you have done differently? Things like that. What we see a lot at Very, and we see hundreds of these major engagements a year, is that there aren't nearly as many unique problems as you'd expect. There are a lot of common mistakes that are avoidable. They're incredibly difficult, but rarely unique. And if you see enough repetitions, patterns start to emerge. And our goal for the audience is for them to get those repetitions or some of those repetitions vicariously through these interviews. We really love it when clients ask us, you know, I wonder how company X solved this problem because it looks and feels a lot like what we're dealing with. Since we have those repetitions, we often know the answer. So if anyone listening to this has their own amazing story to tell or knows someone who does, or they wish that you would cover a certain topic, what is the best way for them to reach out to your team to suggest guests or topics for the show in the future? Definitely email us, podcast at verypossible.com. You can also DM me on LinkedIn. My handle is rprosser26. And where can listeners go to find the podcast? So like you said, the podcast is called Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and the Journey. And you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is John Cowan, who is the CEO of EdgeX. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm great, Stacey. Thanks for having me aboard one of my favorite IoT podcasts. I am so excited to have you, and thanks for being a fan of the show. We are going to talk about a lot of fun things, the military, distributed architectures, and how we should build software for distributed architectures. So, Super, super exciting topics. <laughs> you may feel sarcastic, but I am so here for this. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. 
All right. So first up, we're going to dive into this a little backwards, y'all, so y'all understand why we need to talk about distributed architectures in case you're not sold on the concept yet. So first up, you guys recently signed on to become part of, I'm going to call it the military of things that y'all are participating in with Cubic Corporation, actually back at my hometown of Austin. I think y'all are deploying some of this at Camp Mabry. So tell me a little bit about what the military is trying to do here. Uh, the military, actually, like a lot of uh, civilian verticals or use cases, you know, is struggling with the challenge of how to deploy real-time uh, applications at the far edge of the network. Right? So how do we achieve ultra-low latency so that data-intensive algorithmic processing can be done and, and performed in ways that today are just not conducive to traditional centralized data centers and cloud computing? So often when we talk about this, we hear from people talking about the connected car. And I feel like no one can talk about edge computing without bringing up like cars that talk to each other and stop each other before they have accidents. And it all feels very silly and futuristic and not very real. So can you talk to me about some of the real applications that require low latency and computing at the edge? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you think about things in the context of uh, of the Internet of Military Things, and you know, that's a you know, that's a cool term and a cool acronym that that people can kind of wrap their their minds around visually. But really, you know, when we talk about the Internet of Military Things, it spans even to civilian first responders, as an example. You know, we believe that you know technology is a great liberator, and in the context of civilian or defense military. Being able to consume data in a way that allows for things like threat, uh, threat response to be augmented is a great example of that. So it would be fantastic, for instance, if a police officer or a soldier were able to were able to tell the difference between a car backfiring and a gunshot to determine based on pattern recognition, facial recognition, gait analysis, whether or not approaching civilian uh, is a potential threat. These are the kinds of things that. You know, because technology is so emotionless and and objective, we can, as a society, evolve quickly to a world where, you know, those charged with protecting us um, have a greater amount of intelligence at their disposal in real time. You can't do that without uh, low latency compute being available. Right? I mean, in that those contexts, milliseconds matter greatly. So it can be the difference between life and death, whether that's the life and death of a civilian or the life and death of a first responder or a warfighter. And as part of this, as part of the project that I know you're doing, Camp Mabry, you're also exploring new physical infrastructure. And I'd love for you to talk to me about, I, I know when we talk about the edge, we're like, is it a data center? Is it a box on a factory floor? Is it a server at the bottom of a cell tower? But y'all are actually, as part of this project, the physical infrastructure is very different. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, when we talk about edge computing, we're you know we're generally referring to the availability of the kinds of computers that you would traditionally find in a hyperscale data center somewhere in the cloud. But uh, these kinds of solutions in the Internet of Things depend also on the availability of plurality of sensors: acoustic sensors, video sensors, lidar sensors, uh, weather sensors, uh, all kinds of different technology that does a fantastic job of, of ingesting uh, information about the environment and creating an output that can be consumed by software uh, to do one you know, to, to do something uh, you know with that information and so um, you know the challenge in IOT when you think about the internet of military things or even just dense urban environments generally speaking is where do you put all of these sensors and who provides them uh, because these IoT applications are dependent upon them. You must have sensor data in order to create these kinds of uh, hyper-intelligent application use cases. And so uh, one of the things that we've been working on in conjunction with our friends at Cubic and others that are helping us to build the Internet of Military Things is uh, the Autonomy Institute. And the Autonomy Institute, uh, particularly the work that I've been uh, doing with Jeff Deku and others inside the organization, is really about the public infrastructure network node, and the, the, or PIN for short, and the PIN is this uh, manifestation of sensor plurality in a single location. So you can imagine the PIN as a next generation tower. You think like cell tower, but you know, it doesn't look 
it looks, it looks much nicer, put it that way. And inside this next generation tower, we're able to co-locate a plurality of high-performance sensors as well as edge compute and the required RAN infrastructure, radio infrastructure, uh, in order to create uh, wireless or cellular networks uh, connecting pins together uh, to form a, um, a mesh or a peer-to-peer network, if you will, of, of infrastructure. So that's, you know, that's an important part of this dynamic is, is okay, great, you can, you can do edge computing and you can build an application at the edge, but where's the data coming from and how do you aggregate in a meaningfully succinct way all of the sensors that are required? You know, if you think about uh, without something like the pin, you can imagine a cityscape, you know, filled with every vendor's sensors uh, and related technology stuck to walls and treetops and and uh, window ledges and power lines and these kinds of things. It won't take very long for our cities to be you know, highly cluttered, quite frankly, with the amount of industry Ford Auto infrastructure that w- that's kind of required for some of these apps and solutions. So the PIN is a very tidy, efficient, performant way to bring the sensors to the edge in addition to the compute. And is this an open source concept? Because this is not just happening for the military. This is happening in certain smart cities around the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely a very uh, an open system. I don't I don't know that I would use the term open source per se. Are you talking about the pins? Yes, the pins. Or, yeah, so the pins are definitely uh, they're definitely a an open model. In other words, you know, any vendor can co-locate similar to the way that any vendor could co-locate compute or something in a data center. We, we call them the next generation data center. Really, it's it's uh, the far edge data center, if you will. Uh, so they're designed to work like like that. But working in conjunction with our uh, public sector partners in the Autonomy Institute uh, via public private partnerships, or P3, as we like to say in the acronym, we're able to you know deploy using rights of way, you deploy pins and commercialize. You know, based on uh, effectively the tenancy of uh, of the pins themselves. So the last thing you want to do with uh, an infrastructure deployment like this is have to go and you know beg for tax dollars or force increases uh, increases of taxation and what have you to to do these kinds of things. We think that we can achieve wide scale deployment of pins uh, based on a a P three style commercial relationship with uh, municipalities and states. Okay, so now let's talk about the software side, because I did promise that that was going to happen, y'all, and it is important. We, like, uh, you know, I've been in the tech world for 20-something years, and, you know, client-server, cloud, every big paradigm shift kind of requires a new architecture. And before we get into the details, I really want to emphasize what are the things we're trying to solve with architectures for IoT? What are the big computing pain points? Well, I I think the biggest computing pain point is how you achieve truly distributed computing architectures without sacrificing the important dynamics of cloud computing like multi-tenancy. It's one thing for a private operator to deploy um, a bunch of edge computers in their factory or across a few different locations and start to produce um, applications that are designed to run at the edge. Uh, but it's quite another to do that at planet scale. So how do you solve for creating distributed computing while preserving multi-tenancy uh, and, you know, and, and, and trying to improve the developer experience for those who are charged with you know, building, testing, and deploying applications at the edge? I think that's really the big, um, what's both the challenge and the opportunity that this generation of the internet princesses itself with. And we've seen this, we've seen this over time, right? I mean, you know, um, we can we can think of the internet as having, a, you know, three distinct eras, right? I mean, the first internet in the early to mid 90s was dominated by, you know, operating systems like Unix and Microsoft that, you know, were, um, you know, paramount to, you know, building the client server model and then allowing us to connect those via the very, very early internet itself. And then, you know, open source, uh, specifically Linux and Red Hat, you know, were really foundational to, you know, the, the second generation of the internet for how you you scaled out infrastructure and, connect, and connected it to the internet. It gave us things like e-commerce and, uh, it gave us the dot-com era, you know, those kinds of things. And fast forward to, you know, scaling out the internet worldwide, 
and orchestration technologies like you know uh, like Docker and VMware and Kubernetes and Canonical, they all played an extremely important role in allowing uh, for infrastructure operations to you know to scale broadly across uh, geographies, clouds, data centers, and what have you. We, I don't think we could have achieved anywhere near the level of, of proliferation in the internet without those underlying technologies. But as this pendulum swings back again from centralized to decentralized architectures, it presents new challenges and that ultimately uh, will demand a new solution, not, not dissimilar to what happened in those generations of the internet. And it's, you know, that's, that's the, the window with which we view both, again, the challenge and the opportunity. And, you know, it, it, it took us to, you know, the, the research and innovation cycle of EdgeX to create what we call EdgeOS, this idea that in a small, ultra-small payload, an ultra-small form factor, we could deploy um, our operating system to any computer and create a plurality of nodes that acting in concert form a multi-tenant network of infrastructure that developers can simply write once and exist everywhere across. Whether you're building, you know, a private network like we would do for uh, some of our military constituents, or um, our urban constituents like we're doing in Austin with the Autonomy Institute, or even a large, uh, a large industrial enterprise, um, you know, seeking to build their own private network of computers. The idea being that you know all of the goodness of of uh, cloud services are, are available to developers to write, test, and deploy at planet scale. Now, it's really important here to make a distinction between what you're describing with EdgeOS and containers, because we're all about containers in the IoT. Lots of companies are really focused there. So how is this different and why? So we are, I mean, the industry is definitely focused on uh, using containers and container orchestrators at the edge because prior to EdgeX arriving on the scene, it really was the state of the art. It, it seems logical that we would simply take the architecture that gives us so much goodness in the centralized cloud and simply try to cut and paste it at the edge. The edge, after all, is just another computer uh, to orchestrate to, similar to, say, an AWS availability zone. The reality, though, is that doing that at scale or, you know, using orchestrators at scale across thousands, potentially millions of edge endpoints is untenable for the administrator and beyond painful for the developer uh, to be involved in. It's one thing to do that in a couple of instances and maybe a few locations, but to do that at how we view the edge um, being planet scale it's simply untenable. And so there are newer frameworks, newer technologies that developers are embracing that allow for the developer to be freed, if you will, from this world of orchestrators and containers and virtual machines. And that framework is serverless, uh, which ironically is a concept that was really invented by Amazon Web Services, invented for a different purpose, but but really and truly perfect for the challenge that is the edge or distributed computing, broadly speaking. And the reason why that's the case is because it really frees the developer from ever having to worry about orchestrators. It allows uh, developers to decompose applications into discrete functions. And, you know, by writing a function to EdgeNet, you know, developers can have a write once exist everywhere experience. And that function is what we, we what we take care of across the edge net. Uh, we take care of serving that up to whatever application or device or thing might be making a call to that, whether that function is in the form of data written to the network or code uh, written to the network. Let's also talk about another serious thorn, which is databases and accessing data, keeping your data synced, understanding, you know, state across thousands or millions of devices. How do you all handle that? So data is, a, is you know, we, we've, we often describe the edge net that we are able to create as a content addressed peer-to-peer data net. And we're very, very clear in making sure that we call it a data net because how you write and ultimately store data on a massive distributed system like this is of um, serious interest and you know concern, right? Not just for you know how you write the data, but how do you secure it? How do you ensure that that data is what you think it is? Those kinds of topics become very, very important in the con- in you know in this IoT landscape. 
So you know, we call EdgeX a peer-to-peer uh, distributed data net because what we're allowing applications and sensors to do is, is essentially write data to uh, the network. And you know, through a series of protocols that we invented, we keep data uh, around close at the far edge based on you know, the frequency in which it's, it's needed or used. And so in so doing, what we can establish is a think of it almost like a, a, a passive decay of data such that, you know, data that's not, you know, imminently required for an application or a use case, while still available, may exist, you know, in only a handful of locations on the edge net, as opposed to every single, every single server, regardless of where that is. So we, we, we often describe the process as data sort of trickling back to the core as it sort of decays, as its usefulness becomes less relevant in the near real time. I like that. Yeah. Because, yes, when we're talking about latency-sensitive applications, this is something you want to act on quickly. You don't need all of the data heading back. You just need probably state or what happened kind of information. Correct. But we never want to delete anything either. And so there's this concept, you know, we, you know when, you, when you deploy EdgeOS to nodes to build an EdgeNet, um, there's a programmability setting that allows you to create what we call greedy nodes. Greedy nodes are nodes that, you know, you will have copious amounts of storage attached and, you know, their job is to essentially ingest everything. They keep everything forever so that, you know, even even data that was written to the network last week by a sensor can still be called, but it doesn't need to be served up in sub 10 millisecond latency because it may simply be archive and retrieval. Um, after a week of, of usefulness. So those, that concept is kind of designed you know, into the concept of EdgeNet itself. But the, you know, the, other, the other sort of the B side to data and, and IoT is, is assurance and integrity, which is really kind of the core of, of securing data. So you can think about you know, all kinds of sensitive types of information that can be written to a network in IoT. And um, you know, we designed for that uh, that you know, that knowledge that, you know, this data in IoT is going to be very sensitive or could be very sensitive. So how do you assure um, users that, you know, the data that you think is your data is in fact the data. It's never been manipulated or compromised in any way. And the same goes for code as well. Like when you push a serverless function to Amazon Web Services, you have no idea, okay, from the time that you push that code um, to the time that it is used, uh, what, if anything, has happened to it? You know, a, you know, a line of code could have been modified or a new line of code could, have been, could be entered. And neither you nor the service provider like AWS can attest to the uh, integrity of that code. And at EdgeX, we solved that problem by developing a feature that we call Notary. So Notary as a feature, we called it Notary because it works like a Notary public where, you know, if you want a document, um, you know, attestable in a, any court in the land, you go to a human who looks at your document, looks at your identification, looks at your signature and puts a stamp on the document saying, yes, in fact, Stacy signed this document. And that is that that stamp means we'll hold up in any court in the land. That document is officially certified. So we do that with every single transaction, every piece of code or every piece of data that's written to the network is witnessed by two random other nodes on the network, uh, public or private. And so in so doing, what we're able to achieve is a level of assurance about code and data that is very difficult to get in any other context of a public network. Okay, two final questions for you on this. So one, could a greedy node be the cloud? Yes, the, a greedy node, yeah, definitely. A greedy node could absolutely be the cloud. I mean, so EdgeOS is designed to run you know, on, on anything as small as a Raspberry Pi or a physical server or a virtual machine, or you could even run it in the cloud if you choose. Okay, and then... As a developer, if I'm thinking about having to build an application on this, there's a lot more things I need to consider, like how constrained a resource is, where I should send certain data, or uh, does this handle this for me? Like, as a developer, how hard is it to think about writing applications specifically for this new type of architecture? Yeah, so this is in, in part the beauty of uh, of serverless is that, you know, and uh, more to the point, the value of EdgeOS is that we're taking care of that decision making for you. I mean, you can put parameters on 
things like location, if you have concerns about uh, data or code um, being in a specific physical geography, like a country or a state or a city. However, outside of that, the geo-routing, the availability, the storage, the greedy nodes, all of that decision-making is taken taken into account dynamically for you. So, And this is part of our ambition. Our user experience is simply allow the developers on our network to simply do what they do best, which is write really great code. Got it. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Stacey. As I said, I'm an avid listener. So it's a little bit of a surreal moment to actually be a guest on your podcast. Well, thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe. 